Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott, here again with... Tasha Robinson. Our regular co-hosts, Keith Phipps and Genevieve Kosky, are taking a break this week, but we still have our friend Noel Murray, the freelance goat, jack of all trades, master of all trades. Hello, Noel. <laughs> Hello. I think you got that wrong. It's jack of some trades, no. master of all. Yes, master of all, baby. Last week, we talked about John Schlesinger's Sunday Bloody Sunday, and we have a similar love triangle this week with Ira Sachs' new movie, Passages. Sachs has tackled matters of the heart before in movies like Love is Strange and Keep the Lights On, but Passages finds another level of intimacy and intensity. So intimate and intense, in fact, that the MPA rated it NC-17, though the filmmakers have decided to release it unrated. Set in Paris and featuring a truly international cast, Passages stars Christian Petzold favorite Franz Rogowski as Tomas, a German filmmaker who's just about to enter the editing phase of his latest production. At the rap party, however, he hits it off with a young French woman named Agath, played by Adele Exarchipoulos of Blue is the Warmest Color fame. Things get hot and heavy with Tomas and Agath pretty quickly, but there's one problem. Tomas is married to another man, a shy Brit named Martin, played by Ben Wishaw. Martin seems warily accustomed to Tomas's watering eye, but their relationship is already strained to the breaking point when he starts seeing Agath. Nevertheless, getting disentangled isn't easy for Tomas and Martin, and a series of new developments heightens the tension between all three of them. We'll talk more about that after the break. You know what I was doing last night? No, but whatever it was, you sound very excited. My party and my husband doesn't want to dance with me. I'll dance with you. Maybe we have to take more risk. So now you're falling in love with someone else, you're taking that risk. Okay, so I am obviously really curious from the jump here what uh, what you all thought of this movie. Noel, let's start with you. What do you, what do you think of Passages? I liked it quite a bit. Um, I'm a fan of Iris Sachs's films in general. I would not rate this on the same level as like Love is Strange or Little Men, which are probably my two favorites of his. But it had a lot of the hallmarks of what I really like about his films. Uh, you know, things that, that to some might be a little off-putting, like the fact that everybody kind of speaks very plainly. You know, unlike in Sunday Bloody Sunday, where people are can't communicate. Everybody here is communicating very directly. They're saying exactly what's on their mind, uh, even if they might have some ulterior motive for why they're saying it. But, but I also like the fact that he doesn't he doesn't mess around a lot with with dragging things out. I mean, this the scenes in this movie, they're frequently the scenes don't necessarily follow directly from each other. 
Like, for example, we'll see Tomas will have, you know, uh, an interaction with a goth and her family that goes horribly awry. And the next scene is him at Martin's door talking about how great the screening was for his new film. And the two don't have anything to do with each other, but it's just the story moving along. Just the, he doesn't, he just, he skips past time and gets to the moments that he wants to get to. And I find that really refreshing. This whole movie is over and done in like 90 minutes. And while being short is not necessarily the hallmark of a great film, it's certainly, I feel like, you know, he contained what he wanted to contain, you know, within, within that time period. So, um, so yeah, I, I liked it quite a bit. Natasha, what about you? I also enjoyed it, although it's it's certainly more in your face about a lot of things than Sunday Bloody Sunday is, and that includes kind of centering more on the the back and forth character and uh, kind of finding him to be a jerk. Really, mm. I, oh, yeah. <laughs> I I mean I don't I don't know what you could not find fascinating about incredibly hot people doing each other dirty mm. and also just frequently doing each other uh, <laughs> rather graphically on screen. This movie reminded me of uh, Blue is the Warmest Color for more reasons than uh, the, the presence of one of the main actresses from that movie. There were times, much as with Sunday Bloody Sunday, where I was kind of like, what, what is this scene doing? Why is this here? Or sort of felt like we've, we've made this point before. And it was a depressing point the first time. But yeah, as Noel says, it's, it's efficient. It moves along. There's some stuff in there that feels like almost like cringe humor or uh, discomfort humor. That, that whole excruciating meal with the parents was mm-hmm. hard to sit through like in a good way and the mm-hmm. kind of way where you you want to watch a movie that makes you feel something um and mm-hmm. what that movie made me what that scene made me feel was that i wanted to get up and leave the room <laughs> uh mm-hmm. but just just very efficient in in a lot of ways that uh bringing across the emotion at selling us on what would be so uh, like evocative and drawing about tomas that would make these two people like come to him in the first place and then continue to be drawn to him no matter what he does to them, and then deeply regret having found him attractive in the first place. And uh, like the, the process of watching them look internally at what it was that attracted uh, them to him and just finding them, themselves wanting, uh, I think is just maybe one of the, the more fascinating elements of this entire movie. And I think that's kind of the point of a lot of, of the explicitness of it, it's something I appreciate is like, is like there is something quite raw about the, about, you know, there's this raw attraction in desire, physical desire that accounts for a lot of this forgiveness. I suppose that people, uh, the looking past of uh, Tomas's is uh, uh, not so great behavior. It's sold it on that, on that front that you can have these two characters and a Gath and Martin who are, especially Martin, you know, pretty, pretty centered otherwise pretty rational people, but they just have that, you know, desire that they can't suppress, even though, even if they, they know it may not uh, lead to a good place. <laughs> that scene with the parents though. Wow. It is, it is, uh, it, this is, this is a scene it, we're getting into spoiler territories. We always do. So if you haven't seen passages, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe return to the, to the podcast another time. But uh, at this point in the movie, we have discovered that, that Agath is, is pregnant. And, uh, and so uh, the parents are a little concerned about that. They haven't, they haven't met, uh, <laughs> They haven't met Tomas yet and uh, certainly have no sense of uh, how this uh, child is going to get raised. And and he comes in. And this movie's got a kind of a sneaky sense of humor to it as well. But he kind of comes in. He definitely looks like somebody who has just 
uh, <laughs> had sex with a man <laughs> and, co- and come back home. <laughs> like, like there's like, like he doesn't do a good job of disguising that that is a potential thing that he just did, and then uh, and then he just enters into this. You know, is just at his worst at this moment, and uh, and it just everything kind of uh, falls to pieces. Really, really good scene. But uh, I'm thinking with. I'm definitely with with uh, Noel. I think maybe it was a pretty good observation. I think about the sax style and about about the plain spokeness of it. But there's not only that, but I think there's also a a sense a, a confidence that a lot of these these pieces, these sort of jagged edges, are going to add up to something in a big way. And I, I remember Little Men is that too. Little Men is like hit you like a you know like an absolute wrecking ball. But you don't. But you almost see, don't see it coming because that's not really the nature of the movie. The movie's kind of building and building and building to something, and then he gets to this moment, and it's just overwhelming. And I, I think Love is, Stra- Love is Strange is the same way. It's just it's, it's a real talent that he has. So yeah. So uh, what what do we think of these characters and these performances? Uh, yeah. So um, Tomas. <laughs> uh, not, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I mean, it, it's fascinating to have the movie centered on him, given that he is he is obviously the most difficult of the three. You know, Martin clearly is 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 used to him. Uh, at one point early in the film, you know, when when Tomas is like, well, I don't know if I want to. I'm, I've met this woman and I kind of like her and I might be going with this. And, and, you know, Martin is like, you're always like this when you finish a film. When you finish making a movie, you always behave like this. You forget that you do this, but you always do this. And there's that sense of, you know, that he's just going to weather this storm and it'll, it'll, you know, all be normal again at some point. But then things get more complicated as it goes. Agatha, of course, has no idea. She's never experienced this before, so she doesn't know whether this is like a feverish moment where they're they're getting together and they're going to be together forever. She doesn't know that he's got these kind of whims. I mean, they're fascinatingly they're well they're very well drawn characters, and I think it's because they're so well drawn. The fact that he is such such a jerk, you know, so selfish. You also, I think, it's kind of a hallmark also of, of Iris Axe's films. A lot of times, characters can behave both abominably. And yet you also sort of understand them. You don't necessarily forgive them, but you can kind of see mm-hmm. who they are. Like even in that scene with the parents, I was totally on his side for a lot of that. Like, why are they asking these questions? What purpose does it serve to ask him, you know, oh, so you were married to a man once? And oh, are you going to take care of this kid? What's he supposed to say? I mean, I, I, I was, you know, I kind of identified with his frustration <laughs> where he gets up and walks out. He's like, well, enough of this. Peace out. <laughs> so, yeah, I, the performances are all, I think, really, really well pitched. I think the characters are all extraordinarily well drawn. And I think the choice to center it on the least likable of the three characters is probably the thing that's going to drive some people away. But it's also, I think, what makes the film fascinating. Yeah. The thing I would I would emphasize about that character, too, is that he is in a prison of his own making as well. You know, that, that, that this is he is not just a you know, supernatural destructive force who just tears through the lives of these, of these characters. Like he himself, you know, his, his, his neediness, his narcissism, they have a cost, a personal cost to him that I think the film really registers strongly, particularly at the end or anytime he's on a bicycle, which is very, very terrifying. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, he, he's, what is his life going to be like? Because a lot of it, he, you know, he, he's selfish and he, he has these desires, but he's also very needy and childlike in certain respects and, and um, doesn't really seem like he's capable of change. And, and the end result of that is that he's not going to be able to nurse his wounds and move on in the way that Martin and and Agath seem capable of, of doing because they are ultimately more, you know, likable centered 
adult <laughs> uh, people. So I, I kind of appreciated that, that the film does give you this aspect of Tomas where you can feel a certain amount of pity for him as and, and feel like this is kind of uh, he, he's kind of in a prison of his own making. He felt like a very unusual film character to me because he's not he's not toxic exactly like he's not abusive he's not he's not cheating exactly you know he he's the kind of person that comes in from sleeping with somebody outside the marriage uh, without having discussed it with his partner first and wants to eagerly explain to his partner you know yeah i disappeared i was out all night i lied to you about where i was i just completely gave myself over to like this completely random thing and now i want to brag about it to you like i want to <laughs> share it with you Wh- which you know it, it comes across as like you're important to me you're an important person in my life so i of course i want to share with you like this really cool thing that just happened i have absolutely no understanding whatsoever of like what you're feeling right now it, it doesn't really occur to me what's important is that i tell you about my feelings and this cool thing that that i just did The whole movie for me turns on a moment like very late in the film where a character just kind of says, I like, we're done. I've had enough of this. This is over. And Tomas pauses and then he says, I'm so unhappy right now. And it's just it's so clear that like it does not occur to him to to comfort the other person, to talk about the relationship, to praise them, to talk about why they were good together. He just he notes his own emotion. Like that is what mm-hmm. is important in the moment is his own emotion. And he puts it on a plate and hands it to the other person to say, do something with this. Take care of me, like change your mind, because what you're doing is making me sad. And it's just it's so telling, you know, he's not he's not an abusive person. He's just a very shallow one. He's uh, he's not a monster. He just as you say, he's a narcissist. He can't see outside his own skin for long. And as long as he's happy, which he is most of the time, because most of the time he's getting exactly what he wants. He, it just doesn't occur to him to notice what other people are feeling in a meaningful way. Yeah, I just in the other thing, too, about this movie, uh, you know, when it when I just knew of it found out of its existence and saw who was cast in it it was like hell yeah i want to see this movie <laughs> because i just think i just think these actors all three of them are just so damn compelling i mean there's just no actor like franz rogowski out there he's like yeah he's like i mean uh, maybe peter laurie or something or, i don't know there's just something the way he looks the way he talks the, uh, you know the, the the odd charisma that he brings to this movie and of course to films like transit from uh christian petzold it's incredible to watch like he's just a mesmerizing screen presence you know and of course adele ex archipulos uh, you know the thing that one interesting piece of trivia about this movie is that is that apparently uh iris Sachs had never seen blue is the warmest color when mm. he cast her for this movie which is just really surprising and then the other surprising thing is that this, this is a, a a an nc-17 rated movie with explicit sex scenes in which adele x archer Willis does not get is not naked it is in fact the uh the gent the, ge- the gentlemen who uh, who are but um yeah i just think these these, these actors are all so mesmerizing and, I, and ben wishaw i think is it's a that's a really subtle performance and, and he's a character that who you really think like how are these two together because he is so quiet and reserved and thoughtful and yet there's just like th- some spark that he needs that's missing i mean you know he when he has this relationship with with martin has this relationship with an author who seems to be m- more on his wavelength 
it's just it doesn't click for him it doesn't it just doesn't give him that same excitement even though he is able to get and get to a point you know later in the film where it's like i can't even can't really do this anymore so it's an interesting performance an interesting character and it was just it's just fascinating to watch you know screen presences this compelling uh, you know uh in every scene there's something that sax does here that i wound up a little fascinated with especially in the sex scenes he has a tendency to kind of lose track of his character's faces. Like you see a lot of, of rippling buttocks and thrusting and like naked backs and uh, like spines flexing, but he has a tendency to have one of the partners in a sex scene, like with their back to the camera and then their body obscuring the face of the other person in the sex scene. So you just get bodies. And this happens during like some of the more crucial conversations as well. I, I found myself weirdly tense, like experience a sort of an anxiety that's just like, I want to see their face. I want to see how they're taking this. I want to see what you're trying to tell me about the emotions in the moment. And I, I can't see the, the other person's face. It's an interesting technique that I, I have to think there's sort of a deliberate Either putting it on the wavelength of, uh, you know, everymanizing it to the extent that like we're, we're turning this into something, the sex scenes in particular, we're making this something primal that mm-hmm. isn't necessarily nested in these two individual people. Or it just literally is a way to make the audience pay more attention because they're not getting the signals they're expecting. You know, they're they're not getting any verbal explanations of what people are, are thinking or feeling or wanting. They're not getting facial expressions. They're just getting bodies. And, uh, you know, it's I'm, I'm not sure that I like it as a technique, but it sure did get my attention. Excellent point. I think it's um both halves of what you're saying there, I think when it comes to the sex scenes, like the, we're not seeing a lot of tenderness. We're just seeing sort of just raw carnality. But the, mm-hmm. but you're right that it's also true in like a lot of the conversation scenes to bring it back, for example, to that you know dinner with the parents. A lot of that is just a single shot from behind the mom's head. The dad, I believe, is off screen to the left. Um, Tomas has gotten up and left the table and comes back to the table a few times. The only person whose face we see throughout that entire long argument sequence that the long take of that argument sequence is a goth where we kind of see her face and we have to kind of read from it is she embarrassed for tomas is she embarrassed of tomas we don't entirely know and that and there's a drama to watching her reaction to that but yeah no absolutely i think i think there's a you know withholding certain elements of people's expressions from us is a really interesting technique yeah, in that sequence, uh, not only is the the dad cropped out, he's left out by a uh, language barrier. You know, they're, right, they're speaking yeah. in three different language and languages, and they're kind of trying to like find which language they can speak in that'll let the maximum number of people understand. But he just doesn't seem to have, if I remember correctly, French or English in common with them. So the mother at first is translating for him and then gets too heated and and can't. And we can't see his face. We have no idea what, if anything, he's getting out of any of this. And as you say, we're focused on Agath because she's the one in the the picture, but she keeps her head in her hands. She's like so embarrassed or, or frustrated that she's kind of trying to screen it all out. And she just covers her face with her hands for a lot of this. So once again, we're kind of left... When Tomas comes back, at least when when he's there, his face is the center of the scene because it's the only face we can see clearly. And then he disappears off screen and we don't know where he's gone. 
when he comes back, it's kind of a surprise. I, I was expecting the scene to cut before that, <laughs> as opposed to having him re-enter and continue the conversation. So, yeah, again, uh, an odd technique uh, in, in cinema, which so often focuses on, like, we can't really get inside people's heads, so let's get as close to their faces as possible and, and kind of study the nuances of what's happening on their faces. To go back to the sex scenes, I think, Tasha, you had the right word, uh, primal, uh, to describe them. And I think, like, I think that, that's, you know, that part of it the, the really speaks to you know, the pull of, of Tomas to these characters. The other part of it too, is that, is that Tomas is the one kind of dictating the action as it were. Right. I mean, this is the, Tomas is kind of in, in control is sort of the one sort of dictating as well. And I, I think there's kind of a certain amount of power, uh, maybe, you know, to someone to have someone who kind of like, you know, ravage them in the way that Ta Tomas does. Uh, I, I think that, that, you know, the, I, I like the fact that, that, that the film has this willingness to use physicality, you know, as, you know, a psychological, you know, to explain some of the psychological or the relationship elements of the movie, because it, it, it kind of is a great answer to some of the kind of social media sort of fussiness about sex scenes generally or being or nudity as, as being unnecessary. It's like, well, you know, not the way, you know, I think they're absolutely essential to this movie and absolutely essential to kind of understanding Tomas and in, in, in the in the kind of poll that he has on these on these two characters. It's not like his his personality outside of <laughs> outside the sack is necessarily all, all, all that uh, winning uh, <laughs> a lot of the time. So it's like they, it's like you kind of put up with, you know, with a lot of stuff in order to kind of get to the stuff that you kind of can't end up re resisting. So I, you know, I, I appreciated that about the movie of it, just having the courage to make Tomas as off putting as possible while also making it plausible that characters that we do think are, are, are intelligent, rational, normal i guess human beings could still kind of find themselves in a relationship with him that's a huge achievement uh, i think on the film's part i agree with you about a lot of that but i don't really agree about the idea of tomas ravaging people because of the the three sex scenes that i can remember the one that takes place place in the film offices where he's you know uh, just just clearly more in his element to the degree that they they bring him interns for a a quick photo op to like to commemorate the movie that they just made and he's so reluctant so dismissive so like fine as long as it doesn't take long whatever but he he clearly sees it as kind of his place and he's very much the active uh, and and topping partner in that but in the first sex scene with with Agath, she she straddles him. She's the one who takes off his clothes. Mm. He's like looking up at her, waiting for her actions. In the scene that uh, where he has sex with with Martin, Martin is topping. And oh, it, I didn't. Re I, you're, yeah. I didn't. I, see, I thought it was the reverse. Nope. Oh, sure. no, I no, it, messed it, that up. That sequence in particular, especially given where it comes in the story, just feels very much like a, a sort of expiation. Like he's he's apologizing by sort of like taking a more submissive role and like asking mm, martin to kind of take out some of his frustrations in again what seems like a very primal way at least that's how i read it yeah it is it it is quite a tangle of body i mean really the again the angle that we're getting there is obscure in my defense obscures the fate obscures who's who in a way uh uh the angle that we get of that scene i mean that, that is you know, I mean, obviously that is that is the reason why uh, their film got the rating uh, that it did. But um, again, so kudos to 
sex or including it because you know you don't necessarily see that every day particularly in in an american movie i mean sax's sensibility is so european i mean this is he's such a cosmopolitan director i mean here he has cast his three leads are all from different both the characters and the and the actors are all from different countries and then you look at his last movie uh, frankie which is uh, all set in you know portugal i mean this is a this is a director who uh, I, I think is pretty you know has his has his you know thinks globally in terms of filmmaking and not isn't necessarily following any trends or anything that you might expect from uh you know an american independent filmmaker yeah the really weird connection i made while watching passages was to the wachowskis sensate which you know thematically and narratively i I don't think there's a lot of a lot of threads in common there apart from again the fundamental idea of like communication and connection but in terms of like a pan-European cast with some very open ideas about sexuality and sensuality and the thread of uh, bisexuality and just kind of the the pan-humanism attitude towards sex just really reminded me enough of Sensate that I went back and dug that show up on Netflix and rewatched some scenes because the the carnal elements in particular just reminded me a lot of uh, some things that the Wachowskis did with that that show. Yeah, I think it's I think it's significant that not only is uh, you know Tomas kind of free flowing with sexuality, but that as you mentioned, Scott, that he's German, his husband is British, uh, his lover is French. I mean, it's it's remarked upon only occasionally, but for the most part, it's just sort of taken as being this is the way of things. People are who they are. They love who they love. You know, they connect with who they connect with. Uh, it's 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 sort of just the way things are. And they switch yeah. in and out of languages as as convenient and as expressive. You know, the the idea in the moment that I'm trying to get across is going to sound better in French, so I'm going to say it in French. I want to say real quick, uh, the screener that I got to watch from this, uh, the subtitles were not turned on when I started the, the, the film for the, for the French sequences. And I thought, huh, interesting choice for Iris Axe to like leave, <laughs> leave the French un, untranslated because it was a really short scene early on where I got this talking to her coworkers in, in French. And I'm like, okay, it was like 10 seconds. And then later there's a long scene where people are talking in French and I'm thinking, I bet it's supposed to be subtitled. And I hit the little button at the bottom of the screener and said, oh yeah, there it is. So yeah, anyway. Yeah, I think I I think I had the same experience. That was that was that was funny. It was it when I had the same reaction. I'm like, okay, all right, you know, it's fine. We don't that's necessarily need to know what he's saying. Funny to me because I I got like three minutes into the movie and then I went back, uh, turned on the subtitles and started from the beginning because at the at the beginning you're just dealing with Tomas directing, oh, and that's a so lot good, though the translation's good though it's very funny. Yeah, a lot of what he says is is off screen and muttered in a way. And the subtitles were really helpful in terms of deciphering who was talking and all of this like sotto voce, like low rumbling. So I had them on throughout. So I didn't have any problem with the language switching. But the the weird thing that I thought was really smart and cool about the subtitles was during the sex scenes, they very explicitly uh, labeled like who was making noises. And during the the sex scene in the uh, the film office, he's making a lot more noise than she is, especially at first. There's a, there's a point later in the act where she gets into it, but I, the subtitles kept saying things like he moans, 
he gasps, mm. he and so forth and so on. And throughout the entire film, uh, the the subtitles would be very explicit and specific about like who was making a given uh, like like wordless noise. Not always during the sex scenes, but very often during them. And it actually, honestly really made me aware of some dynamics that I don't think I would have really noticed otherwise. It's like, eh, this is a sex scene. They're both into it. They're both making noise. Like, no, when you pay attention to it, there's a very clear narrative being told here about pleasure and enjoyment and, and where it comes in. And it's surprisingly specific and very specifically directed. And I, I did not notice. I think that was just an interesting touch from the subtitles. That's neat. Yeah, for sure. There's uh, going to be quite a lot more uh, to talk about here with passages, but we should uh, take a break here to bring in uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday and uh, talk about the connections. <laughs> you make me shy. I think I'm falling in love with you. You say that a lot, I imagine. I say it when I mean it. You say it when it works for you. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Uh, I guess the first thing is that uh, we're dealing with a uh, love triangle between uh, uh, two men and a woman <laughs> uh, and, uh, and kind of, you know, not something you see uh, every day, but, but uh, the dynamics here compare and contrast in a, a fascinating way that I think has, you know, a, a large extent to kind of do with the person at the center again i don't that's not good geometry to talk about the center of a triangle but <laughs> uh you get what i mean it, you know the difference between tomas here in passages and bob in sunday bloody sunday is so vast in terms of their just their, the way they carry themselves the way they see this relationship i mean they're 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 opposites i would say <laughs> really just because because bob is so is so relaxed so casual He's not needy at all. He could kind of take or leave. He, he likes these relationships. He likes being in them. He's, he, 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 you know, he feels good about it. He's limited himself in, 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 to, to a certain degree. He's clearly able to kind of like extricate himself from these relationships easily by kind of going off to America and being, you know, he's a, he's a young, unconnected, free spirited person. And, and uh, Tomas is, is the opposite of that. Uh, Tomas is, is jerky and needy and doesn't really have any kind of plan. He kind of does everything by the seat of his pants. And, and uh, you know, he ends up in a place where he can't really transition in anything. He is uh, kind of stuck being who he is. They're both young, attractive artists, though. And I think that there is in both of these movies just kind of a, a thread of them bringing that kind of like artistic energy into these relationships with, in some cases, uh, older and more established people, I think maybe in in passages, 
uh, Martin, it's I think it's unclear how their ages differ, but Martin certainly comes across as more world weary, you know, more more settled in his ways, past the party stage of life, and ready for the go home at nine p.m., have a, a warm cup of tea, and then uh, go to sleep at nine thirty phase of life, as opposed to the stay out, dance with a stranger, and then take them home phase of life. So you know, I think that they they do have some things in common in terms of the charisma that draws people to them. And in terms of not really being ready to settle or seeing any need whatsoever to settle into any kind of regularity with a relationship, like they're, they're getting what they want. Maybe the difference is that there's a sense that Bob is getting what he wants in terms of having two relationships that he considers stable, that separately give the give him what he wants. And he feels at least that he's able to balance them, even if neither partner is entirely satisfied with what they're getting. Whereas Tomas switches back and forth until late in the film when he kind of sees a way to have it all. He's kind of a, an all or nothing, one or the other kind of guy uh, who runs back and forth between them and seemingly is only present for the person that he's physically with and has just about forgotten about the other person to the point where at one point he he runs off to be with uh, with Martin, comes back to being in bed with a, a goth and just seems to have it just doesn't seem to have occurred to him yeah. that they're staying together that she knows exactly where he is that the walls are thin yeah she can hear him oh my god yeah. what a scene yeah yeah um you know i i mean i find myself asking about both of these characters yeah both tomas and, and bob you know how much they enhance the lives of the other two people you know one could say that certainly in sunday bloody sunday that the other two characters feel like 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 bob makes their lives better in some way that they feel sad when he's gone that they you know that they um, um, they miss him. There's there's something that about him they feel they need. I mean, but I guess you probably could say that the same is true of of Tomas with with Martin and Agath. Even though we see him as being destructive, I think that he gives them something that they're that they're looking for. And I don't know if, if like like you've both have pointed out before. Maybe maybe it's excitement. Maybe it's sex. But you know, there's something something there that makes their lives more interesting. But I think yeah. that, I think maybe that's part of like the the decision to make him the focus, make Tomas the focus of passages, whereas Bob is not the focus of anybody's Sunday. If you were to make anybody's Sunday and make Bob the focus, you might have an entirely different perspective on him. You might, he might seem like a jerk. I don't know. Oh, that's interesting. I think an interesting aspect of that in these movies is. You know, they're they're examining and discarding heteronormativity. They're examining and kind of discarding. There's probably a word for n- monogamous normativity. But at the same time, I don't think either of them really examine what it means to to be in a relationship, like what you get out of a relationship to the degree that... I feel like the sequence with the kids where Bob and Alex are in like entertaining these hellions for hours and hours upon end. And he goes to leave and she immediately gets upset. And it's not, you're leaving me alone with these kids. You're leaving me alone to take care of like five kids, a monkey and a dog in a a, a chaos house. Like she doesn't make any sort of practical look. I need you here appeal. She just says, wait, you're going And she knows immediately where he's going and kind of teases him about it. 
but there isn't really an examination of like what it means to have him there, you know, whether she's just expecting like, you're my partner. There's, there's some specific reason that I need you. She just misses him. You know, she doesn't want him to not be there and she doesn't talk about why at all. And I just, I found that an interesting lapse because it just, it seems like a situation where anybody would be like, I, you agree to do this and I can't manage this myself. You can't run off to have sex with your other partner and leave me with a hundred percent of this situation we both agreed to, but none of that comes up. It's just kind of, but I expected, you know, for us to share this equally. I, and I think that's something that kind of extends through all four relationships in both of these films is just sort of, there's an assumption that if you're with somebody, you should be with them a hundred percent of the time and, and meet their needs. And a lot of people here are just not getting their needs met, not in a very specific, I wanted you here for this kind of way. Although there is a little bit of that that happens here and there, but just sort of in the broader like, why Why does your partner have to be everything to you? Why does your partner have to fill all of those blanks in your life? And that's something I felt was missing a little bit in both of these films. And I think towards the end, Sunday Bloody Sunday, especially in the conversation with Alex and her mom, starts exploring that, starts talking about it directly and, and thinking about it. But it's something I kind of would have liked to extend more throughout both of these films. Yeah, the whole conversation where her mom talks about uh, liking hippies and then they have the conversation about uh, where the mom says that, you know, the the spouse is not everything. That, that's not you can't you don't you that expect Alex expects the person to be everything. And, and that's just never going to happen. So, yeah, I, I agree with that. To kind of go back to Sunday, Bloody Sunday, one of the things that, that I think separates uh, Daniel and, and Alex from Agath and Martin is I think that. I think Daniel and Alex are, are fundamentally quite lonely. I mean, I think, I think their loneliness is something that is that the film emphasizes uh, c- quite a bit, uh, rather than say a need or a desire, uh, which which they may which they certainly have uh, for this young guy who probably makes them feel young. But you just get a sense of like you know of Daniel who is uh, living in, in in the closet who's an, who's who's older and alex who's who's recently divorced and kind of un, un, uncertain of where she's going to go in her life i think like he is feeling that need of of making them not feel lonely making them feel desired and then when he goes away they have to kind of confront the you know, sort of the emptiness of their lives and uh, I, I don't necessarily think that's true of agath and, and martin that there's kind of a little bit of a different dynamic there that's true. We do see a goth with her, her, her. We see more of her job. Um, we see her with the friends she has there. And then with Tomas, of course, we see him going out with, with other guys, both romantically, but also just as friends, you know, kind of hanging out and doing stuff. So, yeah, I mean, they, they, you get the sense that, especially with Martin, you sort of get the sense that when Tomas, you know, when his eye starts to roam, Martin's like, okay, yeah, fine, whatever. <laughs> you know, um, I, I, I got other options, other options in my life beyond this besides you. Yeah, it's a transitional phase for sure in passages. You can maybe feel reasonably confident by the end that that uh, that as destructive as uh, Tomas has been, that his partners are have maybe a better future, will find their way uh, so- somehow in a way that he's not capable of, of, of doing. 
So speaking of other options, one of the big connections that struck me in in both of these films and in their navigation of kind of back and forth love triangles is that both of them have moments where the people on the, I don't know, the wings of the triangle, we're, we're still trying to figure out exactly <laughs> how you can use like one word to designate the part of a, parts of a triangle. Okay, the non-hypotenuse legs, whatever they're called. Uh, mathematicians hit us up. The oh no no please don't we're gonna get pilloried. <laughs> uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, we need to hear from you right now about this. Yeah, Alex gets a lover, and uh, despite what you said, Scott, about Bob being just like completely open and and not jealous and not needy, when he shows up at her house and her lover's there and she casually introduces him, he's taken aback. And mm. he doesn't make a scene, but he does seem down. He seems uh, like well, taken aback. And he, he says, I expected you to be alone at this time of day. He kind of visually withdraws from her and she's being very cheerful about the whole fire thing. But he's clearly not happy. In the same sort of way, we see Tomas seeming very happy with uh, Agath and the new relationship energy that he's gotten while still wanting to hang on to Martin, still kind of like using the the shared house as a wedge to try to force himself back into Martin's life over and over. But when Martin gets a new lover, he's openly jealous and it drives him back to Martin because he he wants to keep his hands on him. You know, he he doesn't want to let go of the thing that he consciously let go of he is fine with pushing it away but he doesn't want it taken away from him and he certainly doesn't want it taken away from him in a permanent way as opposed to i'm just i'm with somebody else for a while now because i feel like it so i think that that kind of you know what's good for the goose what is good for the gander feeling of both of these movies of you know your your swing shifter suddenly seeing that he's not the be all and end all of his two mm. partners' life and he he can potentially be replaced and then like navigating the differences between those those two like extra lovers the the metamors in this relationship is just an, an interesting dynamic to all of it yeah and it leads to one of the good laughs in passages too which is which is tomas's assessment of martin's lover's book <laughs> it's just based on based on god knows of like two pages he's read out of like an infinite jest length <laughs> book if he's even read that just how, how uh how terrible a book it is you know because uh, he's just so he can't hide it he's just he's not he's not very grown up and so he just expresses himself with uh you know a blanket hostility because he's he's just jealous uh I, lo I i i love that uh, little detail and uh it is it, it really is helpful that's kind of maybe a thing that passages has over sunday bloody sunday is that it does have humor in it uh there's not a lot of laughs not a lot of laughs in sunday bloody mm. sunday i mean a couple i guess but uh but it's not i i think having a little bit of that you know dark comedy you know it gives uh, passages a lift in certain moments you know i was thinking a little bit while you guys were talking about what we see of their art in both of these films and you know bob makes these little sculptures right these little like you know a lot of different art projects we see and a lot of them seem to involve mechanical processes that will add color or design to pre-existing like glass tubes or a little spirograph type piece of paper that he has set up in his apartment you know that kind of stuff and that's an interesting thing to do it's like he, he he's not him he's not himself making the art he's making sort of the vessel through which the art 
is brought into the world through some mechanical process. So that's what we see of Bob, which is kind of interesting it can, you know, to see it in the context of the way he relates to other people, where he's sort of like a catalyst, uh, almost more so than somebody who is, who is totally present. Where on the flip side, we see Tomas at the very beginning of the film. We first introduced to him being really just a complete jerk, you know, on the on the movie set, bossing people around, uh, trying to get something very specific from them that he can't quite seem to be able to get, which is also kind of very telling for how he kind of is for the rest of the film with his, uh-huh. his lovers that he's like, he's very, he's very, you know, kind of demanding, but also never really quite satisfied, uh, you know, with, 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 with what he gets. So anyway, I just thought that was interesting. <laughs> Just walk down the staircase. How hard is it to walk down the staircase? We also get sequences of both of them being maybe a little insecure about the audience for their art and maybe a little mercenary about how do I make this sell in America? Yeah. You know, how do I how do I ensure the widest possible audience for this? Because this is what's going to enable me to continue to make a living. And, you know, with Bob, it's asking questions like, would an American corporation rather have uh, this kind of art on the wall or like as a sort of mobile thing they could move around the office and, and pose in different places? With uh, Tomas, it's fussing about screenings. Mm-hmm. You know, the screening didn't go well. The screening did go well. We, we think we're going to sell this film. We think we're not going to sell this film. So both of them, you know, even if they aren't terribly insecure about their relationships uh, most of the time, they are a little insecure about not necessarily whether they're great artists, but whether they're going to be financially successful artists and keep doing it, uh, which is just interesting. Uh, Tomas's uh, resentment over the book to me is just like a pure artistic like you not only have another lover, but he created this thing that impresses you intellectually and uh, mm. that I am maybe not smart enough to get it. <laughs> and uh, a goth is also reading it and also thinks it's smart and uh, engaging. <laughs> and that just that makes it even worse. Like everybody <laughs> but him is capable of reading this book and enjoying it. And I, I think there's just an insecurity there about what he creates and how it compares to what other people create. But with but both of them, it's it's just about the audience, you know? It's it's not so much about we don't get to hear either of them saying anything about the emotional meaning of their art or why they create art. I mean I can't imagine Tomas's films being any good at all. There's because there's no he he really is. Hey, they incapable. have really good pocket control of, of hands. <laughs> yeah. Where what do I do with my hands? Um yeah this is like I mean, he's somebody who is really incapable of suppressing any thought that he has. It's all just everything is right on the surface with him, which is not necessarily something we associate with a good filmmaker. A good good filmmakers, you, you hope, are going to be a little more subtle, more observant of other people. I mean, all of these qualities that he is uh, that uh, Thomas is not. But this is not his first film, so that he's making in the in the movie. So maybe he's got some some good instincts as far as that goes. One of the things I kind of wanted to touch on, though in the movie has to do with kind of social and cinematic mores, particularly with regards to the two gay relationships and and the expression of uh, 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 thereof. Uh, Because I think you, you you have this big sort of kiss between Peter Finch and Murray head, which I think was a, you know, a reasonably big deal uh, at the time. And then, you know, cut to 52 years later and, and, uh, you know, you get this extremely graphic, explicit sex scene between two, two men, and you, you you notice how 
thoroughly the world has has changed. I was kind of just curious what, what your impression of that was in, ter- in terms of also how, how well they express the relationships between these two men in both movies too. Because I mean, that's really the point of having them there is to, to, is to kind of tell us how these, show us, I guess, how these, how these men kind of feel about each other. I will just say, again, just briefly, you, you keep talking about the sex scenes being like really graphic. They're, they're not that graphic if you think about it. This is not blue is the warmest color. This is not Gaspar Noe. Essentially, there is no peen. <laughs> I mean, that's a, okay. Those are, the, 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 you know, it's, it's not not. Go ahead. <laughs> no, it's just, it's, it's, it's just I, I think it's worth noting that that you're not seeing dicks. You know, you're you're okay. seeing you're seeing intimacy and like an unselfconsciousness. Like there are no artfully placed sheets covering up like just butt cleft somehow positioned like during sex. Like there's a, an unselfconsciousness about it. Uh, that that just feels like you know have sex like nobody's watching and like there isn't a camera right here but it also isn't x-rated and you know we we have seen i don't know you know cruising comes to mind with its insert shots i guess pun maybe belatedly intended Mm -hmm. there (laughs) um or as i say uh like gaspar noe movies it's not unheard of to have graphic uh, sex or or nudity in European films with men. And I I just I want to make sure that we're, I guess, kind of noting here that like blue is the warmest color in particular um, was considerably more graphic. And uh, well, sure. How does one say in your face? Like, yeah, that was but that was like that was kind of like the centerpiece of the of the movie. And uh this is not a know, criticism. That, this is just sort of an observation. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah I'm no, not complaining. I was just thinking, thinking about uh, an example of, you know, like, uh, a not quite as graphic example, but also sort of a, 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 a gay romance that's explicit in a, in, in a similar kind of way, which is uh, Andrew Haig's Weekend, which begins mm. begins yeah. with these two men picking each other up and having sex. And then the rest of the movie is, you know, them kind of getting to know each other over the course of the, of the weekend. Uh, but it's important in that film that the sex is foreground that's the first thing because that's what begins it all and it is very kind of frank you know um in a way you don't usually see so um but we're i guess we're getting off the topic of these films <laughs> as opposed to that yeah that was not one of the ones i would say when it comes to sunday Bloody sunday i was impressed i guess by sort of how i mean obviously it's foregrounded right the kiss is he walks in the door they have a long kiss it's clear that they want to get this early in the film um, and they want it to be lengthy. It's not a little peck on the cheek. It's got to be a legitimate romantic smooch. That said, it does feel like very natural. It does feel like these guys have done this before. It's not like two actors who are coming together and saying, you know, and now we shall kiss. And I, and I, I think that quality also is true in, in uh, passages that, that the, the sex scenes are sort of like, these guys know what they're doing. Like, you know, this is, this is, uh, uh, it is foregrounded. I mean, I think it's a, it is, is purposeful that the sheet drops that the sheet falls down far enough that you see thrusting butts. But uh, it also feels like, you know, these guys are just doing it. This is what they do. You know, this is how they uh, how they express their sexuality. So, um, yeah, I mean, obviously we've come a long way in what gets shown, but I think in the way that the movie depicts it, part of what makes Sunday Bloody's Sunday special for the time is that it is kind of so matter-of-fact. 
Yeah, with yeah. The, the big kiss in Sunday Bloody Sunday, one of the things that I noticed about it was it's it's telegraphed. You know, from the moment that Bob walks in, he and Daniel touch each other. Like they stand inside each other's personal bubbles and there's like there's face touching. It's not a surprise when they kiss. It's not out of the blue. It's not a shock moment. Like they just play as people who are affectionate with each other, who know each other well, who are like emotionally glad to see each other and nothing about it comes across as like stiff or staged. There's also, you know, there's there's no graphic sex in Sunday Bloody Sunday, but there's more skin than I was expecting. There are more scenes in the bedrooms, uh, you know, with bodies kind of decorously covered, but uh, like also just a, a fair bit of skin. That movie is also not particularly self-conscious about people in bed. It's just not quite as aggressive. And there is actually full frontal yeah. male nudity in that film, but behind a shower curtain, but still it's there. Yeah, I, you know, I to go to go to that. I think I, I think I really like that kiss between Peter Finch and Murray Head. I, I feel like it's it's foregrounded. It's it's you know you think about the sexual politics of the time. You know, I mean, there's a there's a level of calculation that has to kind of go into it, right? In terms of like what can we depict in a movie in 1971, and and so there's a certain kind of boldness to it, but also at the same time, there is a a um, passion that the those two actors tap in a very real convincing way that seems so far ahead of its time because if you think about all, so many movies like from the 90s even the way sort of gay relationships were expressed were so comparatively timid even to a kiss like that you know it just became it, it, you just wonder like do these people ever have sex like what is the deal with these people like they don't <laughs> we're, we're, what's going on here um uh because they're not we're just not getting very much and so i so i kind of appreciated sunday Bloody sunday for having for having that moment uh and i think that gives us enough of it's it just feels honest in a way uh you know and of course you know now a movie like passages which is independent which can can be released you know uh without a rating you know in art houses the, the stakes are not quite as high uh, for it in terms of the politics of it so it really can got it's really kind of, kind of can kind of be free to express the connection uh, between these men physically without fear of, re- of too many repercussions other than i guess getting an nc-17 that it's just not even going to run with anyway so what, what what other connections are worth making here tasha I think just lightly, it's it's worth noticing that both of these movies have their central like swing character leaving the country. There's a sort of threat of my job may call me away uh, to a, a very far away place. And both of the characters seem pretty lackadaisical about the whole thing. You know, it, it might or might not happen. It doesn't feel like something they're actively working towards, but both of them seem pretty indifferent to the effect that it's going to have on their lovers. Both of them seem to kind of take the attitude that, you know, as as much as you might say Bob is like much more open and much more uh, at least trying to communicate and, and connect and much kinder to his lovers, he just has a very blasé attitude, I guess, mm-hmm. about like, uh, you know, I, at, at any moment I might leave the country. And if so, I have no idea when I'll be coming back. And both of them kind of have the attitude of, you know, it'll be fine because I'll be back someday. But in terms of like reassuring their lovers about their relationships or the their future or their presence, neither of them really have much to say about it. Both of them seem to be 
pretty caught up in, well, my career may take me away and that'd be cool. And, oh, are there other considerations? I I hadn't thought about that. And I'm still not (laughs) Uh thinking about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, with Bob, it's sort of like, all right, we know the terms of this, these relationships, like they've been sad in a a way. And I mean, obviously you can't extract yourself from, from relationship without a certain amount of pain but like but it is sort of the i think it is set up particularly with his age and and with you know the casualness with which he goes back and forth between these two lovers that that it's just like this is this is not permanent this it's not sustainable it's not gonna last forever this is just kind of a thing and and uh, and it can end and it's going to end by me leaving and that's just that yeah which is healthy in its way hmm. <laughs> Uh, well, here's something that is uh, is not healthy and that interested me. Both of these movies have just a real theme of people suppressing their jealousy. I yeah. I think all four of the partners, the the outside partners in both of these movies, have either sustained or at least momentary moments where they are just they very clearly know uh, that their their partner is going to the other person. And they generally feel, they often feel like they can't express that. Like in Sunday Bloody Sunday, it almost feels like a a politesse thing, you know, where if we're not as bohemian as the family with the pot smoking kids, (laughs) at least we're bohemian enough to, for, you know, me to acknowledge that you have a, another person on the side. And if I get grabby or needy about this relationship, I'll drive you away. So in in passages, I think there's a lot more overt jealousy, but it seems like all of the partners are kind of like tamping down their own needs and their own desires to some degree at various points. Maybe Martin least of all, because he he is just so close to done with this. But I, I just I feel like there's a running attitude of objecting to this too openly would be like declassé. It would be, you know, being too greedy about this person in my life. And I risk losing everything if I want more. And yet I want more. And watching Mm -hmm. all of these characters just sort of struggle with these very natural feelings of my partner isn't prioritizing me. They're prioritizing somebody else. Maybe they're lying to me about it. Maybe they're just refusing to talk about it. But there's something here that I feel like I can't express because if I do, I'll be a bad person is I think something that resonates through both of these movies a lot. Yeah. They don't want to be square yeah. too. Right. I mean, they, none of them not want to feel like that. I mean, they're, they're an unconventional relationships and unconventional circumstance. They, they don't want to come across as fuddy duddies or whatever, who are going to uh, be not cool and bohemian and, and not allow, allow a certain amount of sexual freedom on the part of this person at the center that they're, uh, you know, that they care about more than they can say. So I, I find that very interesting. It, you know, the other thing, one thing, one other kind of thing we never really talked about is that we do get in both of these movies, a scene between our two. Oh yeah. You mm-hmm. know, in fact, in fact, in the scene, in the scene in passages is like one of my, if not my favorite scene in the movie, certainly one of my favorites. I, I really, really love it because it's kind of like oh like it's so civil in a way and it's just it's like yeah i think they see each other but of course i guess she is a you know agath has a piece of information that uh uh uh, about uh the fate of her uh of her child i guess or would-be child that uh that kind of comes across in that scene but like i find it fascinating both scenes between these characters who are who are romantic rivals in a way but also who can kind of see each other and know what they 
been through. Yeah. What, what I like about the passages scene is that despite their um, the information exchanged and despite the you know the honesty between them, there's also like kind of a very clear sense of hey, we're not going to be friends. You know what I mean? It's like, like, like you could see at the end of Sunday, Bloody Sunday, you could imagine a world um, in which you know Alex and and Daniel meet for tea, you know, occasionally, and and because uh, they have so much sort of a lot in common. I really don't see, uh, even though they might have a lot in common, <laughs> there's a sense of like, yeah, just because we have this one connection, we're not going to be. There's a line beyond which we're not going to go in terms of sharing our lives with each other. Yeah. Well, and also they don't a... have the Hobsons. The Hobsons are <laughs> the Hobsons kind of are, are kind of are, are still that connective tissue. You know, Tomas is not there anymore, so it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> so there's also the element there where you know Tomas very clearly was angling towards a situation where they the three of them would just be sort of a happy throuple, building a life together, and he would have everything he wanted, and nobody got nobody would get to be jealous because they would all be around each other. That scene between Martin and Agath is devastating because it just shows how impossible that dream really was and how one of them realized it and one of them didn't. And one of them has control of the situation and one of them doesn't. And watching the collision of those ideas is, I I think you're right, Scott. I, I think it's the emotional core of the movie. And it's pretty telling that the emotional core of the movie comes when our kind of central character is completely absent. Yeah. For sure. So is this your term, thruffle? Did you even use the word thruffle? Thruffle. Like, like a couple, couple with but, three. you know, with three. Yeah. Truffle. Uh, truffle. Not truffle. <laughs> thruffle. Like supple. Truffle. Thruffle. <laughs> okay, this buddy. is definitely a, a road that we could spend 15 minutes on to absolutely <laughs> okay, well, I, I, nobody's I, I, use. Uh, <laughs> I'd never heard it before. I, I still don't, I'm unclear on how to pronounce it, but... Uh, <laughs> It seems like it, it's useful. Scott, when you, when you pronounce the word couple, do you say cuffle? <laughs> uh, trup, truple? No. Truple? Okay, pronounce oh, the word goodness. three. Pronounce the word three. Thruple. There you go. Thruple. Three couple. Thruple. Thruple. Okay. All right. Well, well so, uh, next week on uh, <laughs> the next picture show, we'll introduce you to a lot more polyamory uh, terminology, <laughs> but it's it's gonna we're going to have to get Scott a dictionary first. Yeah. Another connection that I did promise we would talk about in the the first half of this conversation was just the question of longing for children in both of these cases. And my question for you is whether you think Alex wants children. I, I think that Agath is sort of back and forth on it. Uh, as, as we see, Martin explicitly wants children, but Alex is the big question mark for me. Oh, I would say no. Do you, do you think there's some indication that she would i mean her ability to i i mean to... i think the all of the sequences where they're um where she's taking care of the kids like i i think that we're certainly supposed to be thinking about that during some of those sequences yeah yeah i mean with, and with a goth it's kind of like she it, it's it's an expression of their of their relationship of of her wanting that relationship to be grounded in some way and her him and Tomas to be kind of a permanent part of her life and to be a, a co-parent with her and when that and that ends the pregnancy ends right i i just think it's the big question mark here is alex's relationship with those kids whether it's pushing her away from wanting children whether it's filling any gap that she ever could have had towards wanting children whether it's you know uh, just something that she's debating herself I'm not sure that we get enough data on it. 
And given how much of an, an underlined point it is in passages, I just feel like it's an important thing here. Well, so, you know, next picture show listeners, if you want to see uh, some movies about thruples, uh, Sunday, Bloody Sunday is streaming on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's streaming with ads on Pluto TV and Tubi and is rentable through Vudu. It's also available on Criterion DVD and Blu-ray. Passages is currently in theaters. Uh, we'll be back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to recommend a film or film-related item that complements this set of episodes. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Uh, the film that we kind of can't get around here, I mean, we talked about other Schlesinger films that we like. There's plenty. Uh, Darling, from Darling to Cold Comfort Farm, he's, he did m- uh, many interesting films. And, and of course, Ira Sachs, we've talked about L- uh, Little Men and Love is Strange and uh, Keep the Lights On and plenty of other uh, good movies there. Uh, but the movie we kind of can't get around here is Midnight Cowboy, uh, which is Schlesinger's most famous film. It's the film that he made uh, before Sunday Bloody Sunday. And, and you know, if you want, it sort of has in common with Passages uh, some interesting trivia with regard to the rating system as well, because that Midnight Cowboy had a, was released with an X rating and had a, it was one best picture. But the X was uh, self-applied, <laughs> I don't know, which was an interesting piece of trivia. And then it was re-rated properly as an R, like I think the next year. Um, so that that's uh, that's always kind of a, a big asterisk as far as Midnight Cowboy is concerned. I think there was some concern on the part of the studio, uh, uh, United Artists, about re- releasing a movie with these themes with uh, an R rather than an X. And so that's the way it, it happened. But uh, Midnight Cowboy is... I think quite a beautiful film. I, I saw it again pretty recently uh, for its 50th anniversary. I think I did a piece for The Guardian on it. And uh, I think it holds up quite interestingly well, uh, you know, because you have those performances. It stars John Voight and and uh, and Gene Hackman um, as these characters in New York. Uh, John Voight being this uh, a Texan who comes uh, to New York, uh, very naive, uh, as, uh, tries to get, uh, work as a as a hustler and then and then you have hackman as uh, razzo rizzo who's uh i think a pretty uh, you know i guess a con man right very small very very small time who you know lives in squalor and they have this friendship together and it's a really it's a friendship that exists on the absolute fringes of of new york one of the things that we had talked about earlier with regard to location shooting and the value of location shooting is is uh how much of a, a a time capsule it can be and that's really such a strong impression that i got of what watching midnight cowboy of just of time and uh, of, of time and place and and just in and uh i think of the about the location of ratso rizzo's you know apartment which doesn't have electricity if i recall which is just a, you know they're there it's just a, this desperate place that is just quite literally on the edge of town almost it's just it's uh, on the you know there it's almost almost on the precipice and it's just so vividly realized um what, what are you are you all fans of a uh, midnight cowboy yeah i i saw that movie a lot when i was in college um one of those movies i watched so many times that i had to stop watching it for a while because i you know i kind of knew every line and every nuance and and but it's one of those films that revisiting it 20 30 years later it's striking to me like as explicit as it is compared to what came before in terms of like some of the language that is used and of course the general subject of you know uh, male hustling it also like leaves some things vague 
like you're supposed to kind of make some intuitive leaps as to what's going on in some scenes. Like you have to kind of like figure mm-hmm. out the extent of what's happening with with you know uh, Joe and the guys he's trying to you know to hustle. And I, and I find that fascinating. I, I'm always interested in these movies from this era that are kind of betwixt and between, where they can they can they can hint at a little more than you could have hinted at ten years earlier, but they still can't really go the next step and and just say plainly what they're talking about. But I think it actually works for that film. I think it actually makes it more interesting because it is kind of, uh, you know, uh, of, of its time in that way. I mean, it does sort of depict um, the the mores of, of you know, the late '60s, uh, which were both both frank, but also uh, you know, we, we some things were still underground. And I think I think I think underground yeah, and sure. I think underground cinema is actually one of the main, you know, kind of influences on the look and the feel of a lot of um, of Midnight Cowboy, including the big sort of velvet undergroundy you know, happening, you know, sequence, big party sequence, which, which feels like, a, um, like it's capturing this particular aspect of New York City at that time um, that was very much of its time. Yeah. I said earlier that uh, to me, the big connection here was just the, the exploration of the gay experience and the flashbacks. But thinking about it further, I think there actually is a lot in common between Sunday Bloody Sunday and this movie in terms of people looking for connection and trying to find a way to make that connection fill a gap that they're experiencing. And here, as I said earlier, you know, it's somebody at a, a younger and more tenuous phase of his life. Certainly a much more tenuous uh, phase of, of income, you know, somebody dealing with pretty extreme poverty and pretty extreme desperation, as opposed to being pretty settled uh, in a, a way, as all of the people in Sunday Bloody Sunday are. They, they seem decently well off and kind of in control of their own destiny. But I mean, here again, what I see is somebody just trying to pursue an art and and being really worried about the financial implications which again also something we see in Sunday Bloody Sunday and trying to do it in a a way that's kind of you know selling his own body and trying to use that to validate his own body to validate his attractiveness and his youth and his energy and his charisma and his value and just getting rebuffed uh, circumstantially or directly over and over and over so I, I think they do make good companion pieces but <laughs> just be warned sunday bloody sunday is sad in some ways but it's also very very much about like thinking through what relationships bring you uh midnight cowboy is devastating yeah i mean yeah i mean the three things about three more things about about midnight cowboy uh uh everybody's talking great song yeah great way to kick off, off the movie uh the score is fantastic and is going through my head now it's so beautiful and uh what an ending come on it's yeah. one of the it's an all-timer the ending oh my god it's so so beautiful <laughs> of course with the with the accidental you know uh raindrops outside the bus window looking like tears uh you know so such a fantastic kind of you know movie moment of just of just the weather or something giving you like this incredible happy accident that that uh, makes the film that much more poignant so uh yeah if you haven't seen uh midnight cowboy i think i think we would all pretty strongly recommend you you uh remedy to that toot sweet that's it for this edition of the next picture show we'll be back on august 29th and september 5th with another set of episodes tasha do you want to tell us about our next set of episodes Early word on Bottoms, the second feature from Shiva Baby writer-director Emma Seligman, was so enthusiastic that we naturally had to check it out. 
It's a little bit Booksmart, a little bit Fight Club, and even a little bit Cocaine Bear, since it was produced by Elizabeth Banks and comes from the same over-the-top sense of humor. Bottoms is a high school comedy about two queer teenage girls, played by the Bear star Iowa Debery and Shiva Baby star Rachel Sennett, who hit on the idea of forming an after-school self-defense club to get closer to their crushes, a pair of popular cheerleaders. But the self-defense club immediately turns into a girl power take on David Fincher's Fight Club, and the whole story heads into broadly satirical ends. Some aspects of this film reminded us of Michael Lehman's 1998 movie Heathers, another dark teenage love story about school outcasts who solve their problems in unusually extreme ways. In both of these movies, the usual rules about violence not being an answer don't seem to apply. These are films that channel the perceived nihilism and extreme emotions of high school in unusually transgressive ways. We'll get into it next time on The Next Picture Show. For now, we welcome your feedback on Sunday Bloody Sunday passages and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha Robinson? I am the film and streaming editor at Polygon.com. You can find me writing about film over there. I am on X, uh, which I'm going to persist in calling Twitter at least as long as it's at Mm Twitter.com as Tasha Robinson. I'm on Blue Sky as Tasha Robinson. I have not Blue Sky yet. Uh, Keeping up one social media presence is enough for me without uh, trying to keep up two. I don't know how you do it, Scott. I don't know where you find hours in the day. (laughs) <laughs> no, Murray, are you on uh, any non-X social media platforms that people should know about? And where can they find your writing? Yes, I'm actually on, on the, I'm in the sky, as we like to call it. That's what we say. And I think I'm still under at NoelMu. I honestly, honestly don't know. But I think there aren't that many Noel Murrays in the world. So I'm sure you'll, if you go to Blue Sky, if you belong to Blue Sky, yeah, it comes up. you'll find me. And I, I, yeah. I still have a, a, a Twitter account, uh, but I do not use it any longer. But uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's there. You can find my writing. I write regularly for the New York Times and for the L.A. Times. Film-wise, L.A. Times is the place to look. Um, I have a weekly column where I write about VOD and streaming. Uh, the column is mostly a recommendation column, so I try to find some really interesting documentaries and genre films um, and some uh, art films that um, are not being covered necessarily in lots of other places. So I, I, I'm quite proud of it, and uh, I hope people will give it a look on the, in the L.A. Times every Friday afternoon. It, Noel's got his own East Coast, West Coast rivalry happening. Yeah, and, and so, the New York Times, the Los Angeles by, Times. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah he, he, is, he is Biggie versus Tupac. Noel Murray. Uh, so uh, you could find uh, me on Twitter. I'll just say Twitter. Come on now. At, at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, uh, you can find my work primarily in uh, the reveal, uh, the newsletter that I do with uh, co-host Keith, Keith Phipps. That's the, the reveal.substack.com. Um, you can also find my work in the New York Times, uh, Vulture, uh, Guardian, uh, and other fine publications. Our absent co-host, uh, Keith, Keith Phipps, also at the reveal. Also, he's at Keith Phipps 3000 on both uh, Twitter and Blue Sky, and his uh, he has work elsewhere in uh, GQ, TV Guide, uh, Vulture, and other publications. And uh, Genevieve Kosky, very rarely on, on Twitter, but when she's there, it's at, at Genevieve Kosky, and uh, she is the senior TV editor for Vulture. Stay updated on the Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod. Get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. 
And as always, we appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Thank you very much, uh, Noel Murray, uh, for guesting today. Always, ha- always happy to be here. Killing it every time. You kill it every damn time. Uh, <laughs> thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Thank you.